0: One of the great hymns that we sing this time of year is Joy to the World. Great song, a true song. We don't know the last verse uh, as as well as the rest of the song, but listen to the words to, to this very last verse. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love and wonders, wonders of His love. I wonder about that line, the wonders of His love. Not that it's not true, but about its impact upon us and impact upon our world. Juxtaposed with those lyrics are the words of Scripture from Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There comes a point when you read the nativity scenes, the birth narratives of Jesus, that it's out with the carols and in with the screams. It's just so hard to accept that the Gospel has enemies that the good news has enemies. But there it is. Herod intimidated. All of Jerusalem is troubled. Why would a man as powerful as Herod be troubled at the birth of a child? I don't know. Maybe it started with his father Antipater when he was poisoned. And Herod learned very early in life that power is extremely shaky. And so the very first thing that Herod did when he became king was to kill people. The first thing Herod did when he became king was to kill human beings. Started with the Sanhedrin, which was the authoritative body of the Jews, his rival in power. He rightly sensed that there was a bit of disdain in the minds of the Jewish people about his reign because Herod wasn't completely Jewish. He was Edomian as well, meaning that he was not fully a Jew. There was some of that Edomite blood in him. And so he began killing off members of the Sanhedrin to get the message across to the Jews that I am the king, accept this or die. Once he got upset, it would be wrong to call it a tantrum, he was furious and he had 300 of his court officials killed. His appetite for destruction did not stop short of his family. He killed two brothers-in-law. He had his beloved wife Mary Omni murdered because he suspected. There was a, a, a scent of adultery in the halls of the palace. He was paranoid anyway. The clue seemed to be there. He had her murdered, had her killed because he suspected adultery. Although it was never proven. It was a decision that he regretted the rest of his life. He had a mother-in-law. He had many wives, so he had many mothers-in-law. But he had one of them killed had him murdered as well as an uncle, had some of his sons executed. One was five days before his own death in Jericho. In fact, the the bloodshed and the brutality of Herod the Great became so famous that word of it even made it to the halls of of Caesar Augustus' palace. And it said that Augustus remarked that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. I mean, how bad do things have to be in Israel for it to be safer as a pig than the son of the king? Well, five days before his death in Jericho, Herod is in tremendous pain because of diseases that have racked and ravaged his body. He's in pain. Herod orders the arrest of many citizens and decrees that they would be es- executed on the day of his death to ensure that there was the proper amount of mourning. This is the kind of man that Herod the Great was and what it was that he passed on to his son Archelaus who became ruler after him. That's why when Herod died and his son Archelaus began to rule in Judah, Joseph was told not to return to Judah but to go to that northern part of Israel to Galilee away from the presence of Archelaus. One of the first things that Archelaus did once he became king was to round up 3,000 Jews and had them slaughtered just like his father used to do to secure his power. And all of these events and, and others in Herod's life explain why all Jerusalem was troubled by the question of the wise men. A simple question Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Where is he? Where is this child who has been born who is king of the Jews? And all Jerusalem knew that that was not the kind of question that you would ask Herod. That is, if you valued your own life. And all Jerusalem knew that when Herod was troubled, he would bring trouble down on the heads of everyone, ruthlessly uh, ruthlessly and without discrimination. And so Herod, in, in, in sort of a subtle way, which was not his strong suit... Herod suddenly hatches a scheme. He calls in after hearing about this king of the Jews from the wise men from the East, the Magi. He calls in the PhDs in religion and theology and he asks them, what do the scriptures say, do tell about his birthplace? Where will the Messiah be born? They scratch their heads and stroke their beards and they tell him that according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod recalls the wise men faking and pretending to be interested in worship while all the while he just needs an address. The wise men do find the baby. And they bow down and worship him. And then they are warned in a dream to return to their land by a different route. Well, Herod finds out about it. He's not used to being outwitted, outmaneuvered, outflanked. And so Herod decides to issue the infamous Bethlehem infanticide decree. Herod is the kind of fellow that his fallback position is brutal bloodshed and all the male babies 2 years and under are to be killed the death warrants are issued against the baby boys the butts of the sword begin crashing against the doors good news travels fast bad news travels even faster there are horse hooves on the street the lamps are turned out early there are mothers clutching babies behind cellar doors shh, shh. don't even breathe it's a soldier It's hard to believe this story. It's hard to accept that good news has enemies. But it's as unavoidable uh, unavoidable to read this in Matthew as it was unavoidable to pass by the shallow graves of innocent boys in Bethlehem and not notice. Why? Why? Jesus Christ is born. Why? Jesus Christ is born. Then there's that night when Joseph sits up in bed. The room is dark. He's fumbling around to light a lamp. Mary, Mary, get ready. Wrap up the child. What's the matter, she asks. We've got to go. What do you mean we've got to go? I had a dream. They're coming for the boy. They're coming for the baby. We've got to go, he says and off to Egypt to hide from his enemy among his enemies' enemies. What else was there to do? It's hard to accept that the good news has enemies. It's difficult to get our mind around the fact that the joy is mixed with screams. Rachel crying. Rachel's crying. Again. Again. Refusing to be consoled. They've killed my children. They've killed my children. Why? All the wise men asked was, where is He? All we want to do is worship. The only thing we want to do is to have a little worship service, a couple of songs, a little bowing down, a little worship. That's all. But that's when the the trouble broke out. Do you know how to really release the serpent hatred into the world? Do you know how to stir that scaly thing to crawl from the floor of hell and to wreak violence on the earth? Do you know how to get Him stirred up? Just start worshiping Jesus and loving everyone. He can't stand it. Professor Fred Craddock tells the story of an old missionary to China by the name of Goder, Dr. Goder. He was a gardener, loved God, he loved people. He went to China to do it a lot of decades ago. And in central China, he taught them how to raise vegetables, different kinds of vegetables, and and to feed the children better, and how to have a cow, how to have milk. He was a nice man told stories about Jesus, told them to the children, told them to the parents, had them translated into Chinese. Dr. Goiter was was perfectly at home in China. He adopted two Chinese girls that he found out in a trash can. Chinese police showed up one day and they said, you're under arrest. Why? You're dangerous, they said. The good doctor couldn't even kill a mouse, incapable of violence. They said, you're dangerous. Well, he was. Why? Because he didn't know how to love a few people. He only knew how to love everyone. When Jesus was six weeks old, Joseph and Mary take Him to the temple to be dedicated and to go through Mary's purification ceremony. Mary's up there on the temple platform a little nervous. First time out there, first time up there with her first baby, her first boy. She asks Joseph, where do I stand? What do they do? Well, I have to say anything. You know how I am in front of crowds. No, Joseph says, you just stand there, you just hold the baby. They'll do the little ceremony with the birds that we've given them and then you'll be purified and the baby will be dedicated. Well, I'm a little nervous being out here in the cold. What if Jesus catches a cold? We haven't had Him out much and certainly not out here with all of these crowds. He's only six weeks old. Why don't they have this thing at two years? I think it's too early. Well, Joseph said, that's the way they do it. Just stand there and you'll be all right. And as they are leaving, there's this old man by the name of Simeon. We'll talk about him this month too in more detail. Simeon is old. Old as the hills. He has spittle in his beard. Large, roomy eyes. He's shuffling from mother to mother because God has told him that he's not going to die until he has seen the consolation of Israel, the one that is going to stop the grieving. He knows what that means. And so every time he sees a blue blanket, he runs over to take a little peek. But this time he stops. He comes to Mary and he says, "Ma'am." May I hold your son. What young mother wouldn't be scared to death? What if he drops the baby? But that fear is little compared to the one that Simeon creates in her heart with the words, as he holds the child. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he looks up and into Mary's eyes and he says, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Exactly what every young mother wants to hear a sword will pierce your own soul too. As I read these stories, I see that the good news has a hard side to it. That there is always reaction when the Gospel touches a human heart. Sometimes that heart melts. And sometimes that heart comes to grips with the truth of its own life. But there are other times when, when that heart rebukes the presence of the Gospel in its presence. You know, this morning we considered the similarities between Zechariah and Abraham in the area of believing what God speaks. Tonight, the similarities to Herod and the ancient Pharaoh of Exodus couldn't be more plain. Both men were kings. Both men defied God's mission. The ancient Pharaoh defied the first Moses who was sent to that king to set his people free from slavery. It was that king, that Pharaoh, that ancient king who thought that he was a god who said, no, I don't think that that's going to happen and he had to be humbled the hard way. Herod defied the greater Moses. He defied the greater Moses, Jesus of Nazareth, who was sent to free His people from their slavery to sin. Both men were willing to kill little boys to maintain their power. And the problem for each was that there was a heavy absence of humility. You know, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of being unworthy before God. It is in many respects that that humble heart, that, that humble spirit, it is the deepest form of repentance. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah said, this is the one I esteem. He who is what, church? Who is what? The one that I esteem is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles and trembles at my word. And then secondly, I think we have to keep admitting that we are recovering from the disease of self-centeredness. We keep admitting that we are recovering from the disease of self-centeredness. I'd like for everybody to stand. We're just about done. You're not going to have to stand very long. And what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to turn to the people around you and to say, hi, my name is, state your name, and I am a recovering self-aholic. Take about 30 seconds and do that. Boy, it sounds like a lot of you are really getting into the spirit of the thing. But you know, that, that which we're doing remains standing. We're, we're done. This, this recovery from being self-centered, this recovery from being a self-aholic, this is a lifestyle. We just keep admitting that we're poor in spirit and we see what happens to us every day because when we say that we are poor in spirit we are seeking the blessing that comes from Christ and if there was one who was ever arrogant and one that was ever proud ever arrogant and proud before God it was Paul and one time he writes to a young man he says you know it's for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. That confession is not just a one-time event. It is a lifestyle. And it has to be an intentional lifestyle because the struggle with the carnal, fleshly, sinful part of our life that will last until we are transformed into what we shall be has to be dealt with. And one day at the great resurrection we will receive those glorified bodies and we will be delivered from these bodies stained by Adam's sin and we will be humble and grateful, but humble before the love of God that has been shown to us and has come to complete fruition when we see Him face to face. And that's when joy, inexpressible. That's when peace beyond understanding will blossom in such purity that our eyes will sparkle with tears. How great, how great is it that in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior was born. We're going to sing a song. Our shepherds will be down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, come down and talk with them. That's we're already standing, so let's sing. Jesus is tenderly calling the home calling today.